Good morning, you all. This is Mrs. Wood, and this is our lecture on behavior, cognition, and developmental disorders in children. It's rather lengthy, so we will go ahead and get started. To give you an overview, mental health issues in children sadly have significantly risen in recent history. They include developmental issues, um, behavior issues, mood disorders, eating problems, anxiety, and um, abuse and violence that are um, inflicted upon children. Up to 20% of children may have a mental health issue or disorder, and out of those 20% of children, only 20% have been treated. Um, that's because we fail to screen and fail to diagnose. So as um, nurses practicing with children, you need to keep that in mind. The PCPs need to identify uh, disorders and refer children um, appropriately. Early issues result in increased risk-taking behavior. Use of firearms, reckless driving, substance abuse, and promiscuous sexual activity. So, of course, recognizing issues early on um, is a way to prevent problems. Um, I do have that nature versus nurture. You're going to hear that a lot. Um, the effects that these disorders have on health and development are discussed here. Um, that is our old argument. But um, most people have come to agree that it is a combination of nature and nurture. There are biologic and genetic characteristics that are um, common for these disorders. Um, there's often nutrition issues. There is the combination of environment and family interactions. So you'll see a family that has a high degree of uh, mental health issues can pass that along to the child despite the fact that it's not a genetic inheritance pattern. There are um, temperament to be considered. Um, believe it or not, from birth, we all um, have our own temperament already pretty much predetermined. Regression of developmental milestones is common. They have decreased coping later in life. And as a nurse, you need to be familiar with the treatments and medications that these patients may have and the treatments that they have will be discussed later. So behavior management is one of the main things that are used in children. We would um, set limits. We would hold the child responsible for their behavior. And once we've established a limit, we do not argue, bargain, or negotiate that. We provide consistent caregivers, meaning that um, if we have one particular person that um, can fill in for us if we need to have a day off, go to grocery store or just out with friends, we would use the same person and um, hopefully they would conduct themselves in a, the same way that we would. We'd use a calm, low-pitched voice. We would use redirection. Distracting a child from their bad behavior often is very effective. We would ignore any inappropriate behavior and praise any type of self-control efforts that they make. Health history, um, we would want to look at the prenatal and birth history, any kind of past medical history for the child, previously um, diagnosed with any me mental health disorders. So if you see that they have been diagnosed in the past with a mental health disorder, it's a big trigger to look further to see is there something going on at that point in time. We will ask have they had any type of neurologic injury. We will conduct our own developmental history as well as um, putting the 
them through the developmental exam if possible. We'll ask about loss of any milestones. So did they go backwards on the chart? Any kind of family history of mental disorders? Um, like I said, it is tends to be passed down in families, but this is all part of that interaction that's taking place, that children are involved in a um, emotionally unhealthy family, and it tends to have an impact on them as well. We'll ask about issues with sleep, weight, school, and any kind of risk-taking behavior. Um, have there been any alterations in their friendships? You know, did they um, lose friendships, or did they make friends with people that they normally would not have chosen as a friend in the past? Or have they stopped any kind of extracurricular activities or participation? We would also consider is there some type of new family stress, any kind of trauma or change in the family structure. Uh, we would communicate with the child at an age-appropriate level because um, they can talk to you. Believe it or not, these little kiddos will talk if you give them the opportunity. We'll ask about their predominant mood. Um, of course, hallucinations would be a concern if they're experiencing that. Other questions that we would want to ask, um, have they become aggressive, impulsive? distractible? Um, are they intolerant to frustration? You can see some kids just absolutely lose it over what seems to be nothing. And, um, you know, that's, that's a good indication that they're not dealing well with their emotions. Do they lack a sense of humor or a sense of having fun? Do they show new inhibitions? That would be a big concern. Any kind of poor attention span, um, potential learning problems, or unusual motor activities. And that's our ticks that we'll talk about here in a little bit. On the physical exam, you can see this gal. She's not a kid, but she's avoiding eye contact for sure. We're going to look at their general appearance, including their clothing. Um, is it appropriate for the time of year, and is it age appropriate? Uh, their affect, um, what is their facial expression, and what is their posture? Um, that's a real telltale sign there. Are they making eye contact? How do they respond to their family member when they're spoken to? Um, you can tell a lot about the dynamic just in a few minutes' time in an exam room between a parent and child. Do they communicate well? Um, does the child have any kind of injuries? Look for bruises, burns, torn fingernails, and inflamed throat, vaginal discharge. On our labs, really, we're just going to be looking at toxicology for alcohol, drugs, um, and that's especially if they have some kind of bizarre behavior. Nursing considerations. Um, your goal is to maximize functioning. Um, if you think about it, anxiety and depression, any kind of mental health disorder tends to disorganize a person and make them function at a much lower level. It's hard to think when you're anxious, and it's hard to act when you're depressed. So that would be a main goal um, is to maximize their functioning. We need to look at the alterations in nutrition. Do they have delayed growth and development? Um, what are their social interactions like? Do they have a sense of hopelessness? Is there caregiver fatigue taking place? And um, what is the knowledge deficit that's going on, not just for the child, but for the parent as well? Um, because parents um, really do not know how to um, interact with their child when something is wrong in that regard. So other nursing diagnosis and goals, we're going to look at their growth and development, impulsivity, 
the altered social interactions uh, related to their self-concept or thought process disturbances? Do they feel unworthy or unattractive? What is um, their coping mechanism? Do they have a coping impairment? Um, do they just not know how to handle it when they get frustrated or angry or um, scared? Um, are they feeling hopelessness? And that would be related to chronic stress of mental health um, disorders, okay? Developmental disorders or social isolation. All of those lead to a real sense of hopelessness. When addressing these concerns, be sure you get the child's attention, make eye contact, and give clear instructions. So we have to make sure that when we um, have well thought this out and decided what needs to be said, that we actually are speaking to someone that's listening uh, because uh, they can be sitting there and appear to uh, be giving you their attention when they are lost in their own heads. Anorexia nervosa um, or other eating disorders and nursing considerations here. Um, this is food intake less than recommended daily allowances. It's an insufficient interest in food. Um, sometimes we'll see a BMI less than the fifth percentile for weight. They have no interest in food. They are satisfied very quickly when they eat. Nursing goals is to establish a contract, give them the control. Let them make the choices about what they want to do so far as if they're going to exercise less, eat more, um, eat more often. So we'll set up a contract with them. We'll encourage the child to make choices regarding what and when. Create a good eating environment. Um, withdraw attention if it's um, giving them secondary gain. And that just means it becomes a power struggle. And this is when they know they can win. I mean, you cannot force that food in their mouth. And um, you can't monitor them. 24-7, but it does suggest that we monitor them um, after meals for 30 minutes to make sure that they're not going and regurgitating and getting rid of it. So we need to promote hope. Um, assess for, for potential suicide. We're going to talk about that in a little bit and the statistics. They were truly alarming. I have to say I didn't realize the number was so high. Um, we identify reasons for them to have hope. We'll set goals that are important for the child to achieve. You know, like what do they want to accomplish? Do they want to be a cheerleader? Do they want to be in band? Do they want to play a sport of some kind? Or uh, do they want to go to college someday down the road? We have to help them see goals that are before them that are achievable. Um, encourage simple decision making on a daily basis. And this is really done because making a decision makes you feel in control, hope, hopelessness, often occurs due to feelings of loss of control. So making decisions puts them back in control. And of course, remember what we've talked about in the past, that we give them choices between acceptable um, choices and outcomes, you know. Um, so we would have to guide them on that to some extent, but we definitely let them make the decisions. Identify their positive qualities. I don't care who you are, you've definitely got some pos positive qualities in some way, shape, or form. And then we'll involve the parents and siblings and the friends as a part of their social support team. I love a little flower that refuses not to grow. So developmental behavior um, disorders uh, make up a large portion of the mental health disorders in children. This represents learning disabilities, intellectual disabilities, the autism spectrum disorder, we'll call that ASD, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder.
term now covers everything in relation to ADD, ADHD. Um, there's actually a breakdown of three specific types, but we will just use the term ADHD. So learning disabilities, 10%, um, that's roughly, of all children and adolescents have a learning disability. Kids with chronic illness are twice as likely to have a learning disability. An innate cognitive difficulty resu results in lower academic achievement than would be expected for the level of intelligence that that child has. So um, it's not the intelligence, but their ability to learn. Um, it becomes evident when the child of average intelligence has difficulty mastering basic academic skills. It may affect their ability to listen, speak, read, write, or perform math. So these are the specific learning disabilities, dyslexia, the ability to read, write, and spell, dyscalculia, that's math and computation. Dyspraxia, the manual de dexterity and coordination. And dysgraphia is difficulty producing the written word, like writing a paper or spelling. Remediation or compensatory approaches are taught. So in compensatory, we teach them how to channel it and how to compensate for this learning disability that they have and try to support their self-esteem through supportive interventions. A little bit more on learning disabilities. Um, we need to determine the cause if we can. We do also need to consider lead-based paint poisoning. Okay, so lead poisoning. That's something that used to be very common. So um, it is much less so they discovered that the paint that um, we were painting our houses with back in the, you know, prior to the 1980s had lead in it. And children are the ones that, you know, were playing and um, chewing on the windowsills. <laughs> I say that jokingly. Um, it's not all that uncommon to look over and see your child gnawing on something. But lead-based paint used to cause a lot of problems. And still to this day, we test every child. Uh, for lead-based paint poisoning. And so um, it's a piece of paper with a circle in the middle of it, and you take the blood, and you, we jokingly called it painting the circle, and uh, we'd put the blood there. And anything greater than five is a concern. We'll determine what the educational difficulties are. Um, just like we covered, there's four different categories there. The testing may be performed by the school, a clinical psychologist, occupational therapist, speech therapist, a language therapist, or a developmental specialist, depending on the difficulties that they have. Uh, DEA is the Individuals with Disabilities, and IEP, it should be IEP, Individualized Educational Plan. That's also called a 504 that's available through the school. As a nurse, we are the advocate for that child, and we must make parents aware of what's available out there and help them secure those school services. And uh, there is a difference if they're less than three, it goes through early childhood education. If they're greater than three, um, it is the IEP. Now, intellectual disability. This one is uh, um, so hard to see, but this is um, what used to be called mental retardation. 
And so you might even hear MR, you know, people will use the abbreviation MR. Um, and because that term has recently been changed, you will still see uh, mental retardation used. And um, so be aware that that's the same thing. Patients experience significant limitations in intellectual status and adaptive behaviors. This is the function of ADLs, and it does occur before the age of 18. It is about 1% of the population, and out of that 1%, 85% of those are considered to be mild and have an IQ of 50 to 70, and they can live independent adult lives and work in occupations that do not require higher order thinking not to insult any occupation out there, but examples of that would be like a grocery stocker or a dog groomer, something like that, um, maybe a pet sitter. Um, there's, there's lots of ways that they can lead productive lives and have a job. And um, There's a place in Cushada that they actually have a bakery and they do ironing. And so those are the two things that they have, people that have the intellectual disabilities um, come and do, and they actually earn a living doing that. And um, it is a business, not um, a government entity, but a business that has um, put these people to work, and um, they have meals together every day, lots of camaraderie, and um, make a living. They love it. Our goal is to provide um, appropriate education, educational experiences to maximize their functioning and create self-sufficiency. A little bit more on intellectual disability. Uh, developmental screening should be done at every healthy visit. And your healthy visits start very frequently in um, the infant stage, but they go to once a year by the time they are eight years old. We will document the sequence and age of attaining milestones. Our risk for intellectual disability are preterm or postterm birth, um, low birth weight, birth injury, prenatal or neonatal infection, prenatal alcohol exposure or drug exposure, any kind of genetic syndrome, a metabolic disorder, lead-based paint, a head injury, or an inborn error of metabolism. We will assess their language, their sensory perception, psychomotor functioning, and any previous hospitalizations. We'll look for any kind of dysmorphic features and um, the features of fetal alcohol syndrome are listed in, pay, in the box on 50.2. We can also look at MRI for the size of the brain itself and then thyroid function because thyroid dysfunction sometimes can cause some intellectual disability as well and it goes undetected in children. Support parents as they verbalize their frustration and fears. I remember we talked earlier about that's not what you picture um, your child's life being and um, what that child's life means to you as a parent, you know, so they experience a lot of grief and um, sadness over that. We will help the parent establish a support system. So autism, this is one in every 68 children will be diagnosed with autism across the world. Um, so the signs and symptoms of this have been noted very early. Uh, I didn't realize that they were now backing this up as far as infancy, but they said that it can be recognized even in infancy. But for sure they're going to be diagnosed by the time they're 36 months, and there is no cure. So this intellectual disability is common in these. Um, 
they require lifelong supervision if they do have the intellectual disability. It's not always present. Many have a normal or even higher than normal intelligence level. They do have developmental delays. Um, sometimes there is regression. That's commonly what you associate with autism is the regression. So they achieve a developmental milestone and then fall backwards on that. And the most common one that you hear talked about is their speech. Um, but it is also other physical things. Um, patho on this, it's considered genetic, though they've not identified a particular gene. They have issues with brain connectivity. Um, you can imagine um, if you were to take your fingers, I wish I was standing in front of you and can do this, where you could wiggle your fingers at each other as they're opposed in, in front of you, that um, the messages are just not going across from one side to the other. They experience impaired social interactions. Um, they have a lot of problems with communication. This type of play, perseverative, I'm not sure exactly what that is. They do have stereotypic behaviors, and they fail to develop interpersonal relationships, interpersonal relationships, which causes a lot of social isolation. I'm gonna get a sip of water here, guys. So for management, it just varies a whole lot. There's no medication. Our focus is on therapeutic management. It is very individualized. Um, it's behavior and communication therapy. It's highly structured educational environment. This is one of those times that you really have to have concrete structure that just does not change. Um, stimulants may help with hyperactivity. Antipsychotics um, help with repetitive or aggressive behavior. Complementary and alternative med therapies, um, vitamins and nutritional su supplements, herbs or dietary restrictions have all been tried along with um, music, art, or sensory integration therapy. Um, none of those have been scientifically proven to work. And I think um, it's just because autism presents itself in so many different ways in every different child. Um, this is one of those times that you have to really um, look at that child on a very individualized um, manner and see what works for that particular child because you can't do generalizations. On your nursing assessment, you'll note a delay or regression, particularly speech and language. They fail to point at objects or gaze at the objects that you're pointing at with them. So, um, you know, if you try to point something out and they just can, you know, it's like they are deaf or refuse to listen to you. Um, some of the most common early characteristics is a failure to respond to their own name. They won't look, look directly at others. Uh, they will use gestures. Um, they may be mute or only utter sounds and they may be very repetitive with their sounds, okay? And so, um, and they're, they'll be very loud sometimes. They spend hours in repetitive activity. They resist being cuddled. They lack eye contact. Um, they may be very indifferent or resistant to touch. And that's very common. They have little change in facial expressions. And um, I just added this, you have no idea how much the parent and, of an autistic child just wants to love on them, get a kiss from them or be told, I love you. And you just 
don't get that from your child for the most part on autistic child children. So a little bit more on that. The infants resist cuddling and eye contact or seem indifferent to affection. Toddlers may be hyperactive, aggressive, throw temper tantrums, or injure themselves um, by doing things like head banging or hand biting. Um, that's very difficult to watch too. And if you try to intervene, it, it makes it ramp up. It goes into high gear. Um, the history, they uh, may include hypersensitivity to touch or hyposensitivity to pain. And I've, I've actually witnessed that myself. The screening tools, there's the MCHAT-R. Um, they do that at 18 months and then again at 24 to 30 months. And then they're, um, I believe that's the same one that it is. It's the Modified Checklist for Autism in Toddlers Revised. That's what the MCHAT-R stands for. There's also a social communication questionnaire and another one that's called the PDD-ST2. So on your physical exam for our autistic children, look for a lack of eye contact or a failure to look at objects, failure to point to himself when asked, you know, like we'll ask, um, you know, show me your eyes, show me your nose, and they'll not um, participate at all. There's that play again. And then hand flapping or spinning. We're going to measure their head circumference. They can have either one, large or small. They may have prominent ears, skin lesions, deep tendon reflexes um, that may be hyper or hypoactive. They may have toe walking. Um, I think this is supposed to say a loose gait. Um, poor coordination. And, of course, we're going to check the newborn screen and look for lead-based paint testing. Management, extensive emotional support for the parents, um, refer early, and of course get them that IEP if they're uh, more than three years old. This is one of those times that you want a rigid, unchanging routine. It needs to be maintained at all times, in all settings. And um, the instructor that used to teach this talked about her child that had autism and had to go in the hospital. and. Um, you know, we give medications at a routine time, 9 in the morning, 9 at night, and he needed his 9 p.m. medicine, and they came in like at 8.20, and he said, uh, it's not 9 p.m., <laughs> and there was nothing they could do to convince him that it was time for his medicine. They had to wait till the dot of 9 o'clock because that's what time he took his medicine. So they are very rigid, but it is adherence to this that um, keeps them kind of lined out and calm. We interfere with their routine, and things go haywire. Hurry. So ADHD, it is the most common neurodevelopmental disorder in childhood. 10% of school-agers have this, and it is boys more than girls. Um, it is characterized by inattention, impulsivity, distractibility, and hyperactivity. It significantly disrupts their learning ability and socialization. And um, let's see, compliance placing significant demand on the child. Yeah, they're not very compliant either because they just lack the ability to um, adhere to what you're trying to tell them because they're just so wired up. So that compliance places significant demand on the child, the parent, the teacher, and the community. So everyone involved in dealing with a child that has ADHD will experience some 
angst in their ability to try to channel them and direct them. Often it is comorbid with ODD, uh, oppositional defiant disorder, a conduct disorder, anxiety, depression, or less severe developmental disorders, auditory processing disorders, meaning that it just takes them a long time to figure out what it is that you just said. And that's kind of frustrating too, and you can still see the wheels are turning very slowly. Um, it's, it is um, learning um, and reading difficulties um, involved in this as well, almost all the time. On the path, though, it's really unidentified. It's believed to be an alteration in a catecholamine neurotransmitter um, system. It's genetic and environment both play a role. This is that nature-nurture thing again. It is a structural brain abnormality that may be present. Uh, there's nothing identified in all the study that's been done. Um, it begins before seven years old. It persists for greater than six months where you're seeing these behaviors. And it occurs in um, two or more settings. And that's usually considered school and home. This disorder impairs family and social inter interactions. Teens that have it experience frustration, um, frequent mood changes, emotional outburst, peer rejection, poor school performance, and low self-esteem. So um, you see the age that it onsets, that's at seven. It really existed prior to that, but by this age, they are expected to be able to remain in their seat, be able to raise their hand if they have something to say, be able to focus on that you know, task at hand in a school environment. So that's typically where you see it showing up. And then you see that you know, being rejected by peers. That happens at all ages. What happens is um, a defense mechanism that these ADHD kids will put into places to um, act out or be silly. Uh, they'd rather be in trouble and criticized for being silly than for not knowing something. So they're going to cover up their lack of ability to respond to a question by being silly or by being disruptive. And um, it's just one of their mechanisms. So this little organizational chart uh, underneath that, I said, you will never see this. That is not something you're going to see with an ADHD kid. Um, the teens have a very poor metacognitive cognitive skill. So um, they lack the ability to organize um, time management. Um, their ability to break tasks down into manageable pieces is just non-existent. So this makes them appear to be lazy or unmotivated, but they are not. They just don't know where to get started and how to cope when something seems to be overwhelming. So there is a place in your book that you can look, um, box 50.3, that shows you the diagnostic criteria. And um, y'all are going to look, aren't you? That's what I said because y'all are all bound to think, do I have a little touch of this or does my friend so-and-so have this or does my little brother? Um, because it is something that is common. They say 10%. I think that's how many are treated. <laughs> but tell you what, I think it is actually occurs a little more often than that. So um, our management for ADHD, typically stimulants are used. Some non-stimulant norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors work um, and or the alpha agonist antihypertensive agents. It's not a cure, but certainly help increases the ability to pay attention and decreases impulsivity. 
they, they don't affect the activity level for the most part. Um, behavior therapy does help um, classroom structure and maintaining a routine. So if you come home, you normally have a 15-minute break and snack, then you sit down and do your paperwork or, you know, homework, and then you go outside and play, and then you have supper at 6, bath times 8, bedtimes 8.45. That structure, that routine has to be maintained all the time. They recommend maintaining it seven days a week. These children may also have anxiety. Uh, this one is great. They are accident prone and they are, they lack the ability to think things through and that combines with their impulsivity and that results in a lot of accidents and injuries. The funniest one I can tell you is this boy that built a bicycle ramp, you know, and I mean, everybody would applaud him for being able to get out there and um, build a bicycle ramp all by himself, you know, but he built it at the end of his driveway and he lived on a pretty busy street. So um, his thought process is that this is not a good idea of riding my bicycle down the bike ramp and landing in the street. Never, you know, showed up on the radar. So that poor kid built a bicycle ramp and rode his bicycle out into the street. Oh, it was beautiful. All right, so ADHD continues here. Some of the things we're going to want to ask about. Have they ever had a head trauma? You see how disorganized I made this slide? I did it on purpose. I thought it was kind of a cool way of presenting that whole disorganization of an ADHD kid. We have to look at lead exposure, cigarette smoke exposure, prematurity, low birth weight. Are they accident prone? Is there a family history of ADHD? We will ask, are they unable to stay on task? Do they talk out of turn? Do they leave their seat when they shouldn't? Do they neglect to complete in-class assignments? Do they forget to turn in homework? Are they poorly organized in life in general? And are they forgetful? I'm telling you, <clears throat> the best laid plans of mice and men do not help with these disorganized children sometimes. And it's really pitiful that they struggle to do the work that they do, not to be able to find it the next day and turn it in. Have the parent and the teacher both fill out a behavior checklist, and um, that's called the Vanderbilt scale. So um, it is commonly used, and um, you'll it's broken down into sections, and you can go through and um, gauge, are they just inattentive? Do they have inattentiveness and hyperactivity? Do they have any kind of resistance? Like, um, you know, are they a little bit on the aggressive side or um, oppositional in that manner? Or do they have the impulsivity? There is no lab or diagnostic test. Uh, the management for ADHD, um, these children are frustrated because of their difficulty, and it is frustrating to deal with these children. Um, the parents may doubt their ability to effectively parent these children, or they may even somehow see their child as being defective. The child may feel defective. They may feel bad. Um, they feel that they are at fault. They feel stupid and intellectually challenged. So we have to give emotional support, not just to our child, but to the family. Uh, we help them develop goals and organizational strategies and set up that line of communication between each other and between them and the school. So um, we will help the parent be an advocate for their child, and that is through the IEP. These checkups for these children need to be every three months. 
we ourselves will communicate with the school if necessary. We will use timeouts and positive reinforcement as a way to help channel them. There's a token system where you earn tokens for certain behavior and tokens are take a, taken away. And then at a prescribed period of time, um, the tokens that you have accumulated can be spent on rewards. We avoid at-school medication administration if at all possible. Um, they have enough of a stigma already um, not to go down to the school nurse and have to take a pill every day. And um, there are long-acting medications now that can be given at breakfast. These medications may affect their appetite, so they need to be taken with a high-fat food to slow absorption. So that's actually two thoughts in one. They do need to be um, given with a high-fat food to slow absorption. But we also need to make sure and get that first meal of the day in as we give the medication because they may go without eating all the way till the end of the day. All right, so we're going to move on and talk about Tourette syndrome. This is those motor tics and vocal tics, and it takes more than one motor tic and one vocal tic occurring simultaneously or independently. So um, you're not going to see just one little thing. It'll be a combination of greater than or equal to one motor tick and one vocal tick. These are sudden, rapid, recurrent, stereotypical movements and or sounds of which the child appears to have no control. And y'all probably all seen this at some point in time by now. And it's maybe as much as 1% of the population has it. And we're looking at the onset always being before the age of 21. Comorbidity, 60% of them have something else going on, like ADHD or OCD. That's your obsessive compulsive disorder, or they might have some other type of mental health disorder. Pathology is unknown, though it is thought to be genetic. Uh, therapy would be very individualized. Um, it would include behavior management, but psychopharmacology and habit reversal training. We'll talk a little bit more about here in just a second. So on nursing, we're set, we will assess how it's affecting their friendships, school performances, and self-esteem. The vocal tics are sometimes snipping, grunting, clicking, or word utterances. And that can be at very loud volume sometimes, y'all. Stress causes the tics to go into high gear. When they are engaged and focused in an activity like TV or reading or video game, the tics appear to disappear or at least um, go away to some extent. So what we can do is take a tick break when the stress gets high or go to another room. We can take untimed tests to help reduce their stress level or use a tape recorder for lectures, that kind of thing, to help reduce the stress. Tourette's um, Syndrome Association um, exists to provide support. So now we're going to talk about eating disorders, and this is a combination here of anorexia nervosa and bulimia. Um, by the way, pica and rumination are mentioned. Pica is um, usually around two to three years old. They like to eat clay, paint, and dirt. Uh, rumination is where they kind of like regurgitate into their mouth and then sit there and kind of work on it and either spit it out or swallow it back down. And that happens in infancy. It's not something I've ever heard of. So I didn't even want to spend any time focusing on that. But pica is something that you see even practiced intentionally 
by adults, um, and it is particular clay. Uh, it's thought to be associated with anemia. It also wears your teeth down, y'all, so I don't recommend it. Um, so let's talk about anorexia. Uh, this is just a lack of appetite. So this is not like when we look at somebody and say, oh, they're so anorexic. It's not a word to describe then, and it is not the disorder. Uh, the disorder is anorexia nervosa. So for um, type and sake, we're going to use AN for anorexia nervosa and B for bulimia, and when it's both A and B, okay? So A and B are common eating disorders, mostly uh, affecting adolescent females. The American culture has kind of set this one up because we value being thin so highly, and um, that just kind of compounds it. It is uh, just a little bit less than 1% of the adolescent population. AN decreases, um, they have decreased oral intake and a sharply increased uh, level of physical activity, and they will be super thin. Bulimia is normal food intake, and then they binge, then they purge. So they will be either a normal weight or just a little bit overweight. So you'll see them consume what is a normal amount of food, then they go binge, then they purge. So A and B complications, electrolyte imbalances, decreased blood volume, cardiac arrhythmias resulting from the electrolyte imbalances, esophagitis, that's from the acidity of the stomach contents coming back up, ruptured esophagus or stomach from the vomiting, tooth loss, uh, menstrual dis disturbances, you know, when you're super thin, your hormone levels are very low. Um, eating disorders, um, management, in or outpatient depends on the severity. Of course, if they have severe electrolyte abnormalities, we'll have to have them inpatient. It is multidisciplinary. We have to do some nutritional therapy. There's counseling involved, and we must include the family. It's hard sometimes for these moms to picture that their daughter has a true mental disorder, and that's exactly what this is. So I found that um, source right there. In So anorexia nervosa characteristics are female. They're typically white. They are preoccupied with their appearance. They may have some OCD and low self-esteem. On our history, we're going to ask some questions about constipation, syncope, you know, have they passed out? Secondary amenorrhea, and that's where you've had a normal cycle pattern and then it goes away. The most common cause is pregnancy, but it also happens in these disorders where they're not eating enough to maintain normal hormone levels in their bloodstream. They may have a history of abdominal pain or periodic episodes of cold hands and feet. That's due to that circulation. And they may have a history of depression. Their chief complaint, the parent will bring the child in complaining of weight loss. And the child's going to be sitting there like, you know, no clue as to why their parent is concerned. Um, on our assessment, we'll see very low weight that should be less than 17th percentile. They may have a cachectic appearance. They have dry, sallow skin. They have thinning hair, pitted nails on their vital signs. This is one of those times it's kind of telltale. Vital signs don't always give you a good indication what's going on with a pediatric patient, but they do here. They will have a low body temperature, low heart rate, and hypotension. 
Selenia, and I love this one. She's sitting there scarfing down a pizza over the commode. Um, this is normal to slightly overweight um, teens. They have calluses on the back of their knuckles. They may have split fingernails. This is otherwise will be, or the oropharynx, will be red with eroded dental enamel and red gums. That's from that acidity from the stomach. They have an inflamed throat from the vomiting. We'll evaluate electrolytes and an EKG, and this requires months of therapy. Here's that picture of the calluses. All right, so they have arrested pubertal development. Refeeding has to be done slowly. You would think that, you know, um, it, it would not have to be regulated, but it does. In A and B, um, phosphorus supplements, orthostatic hypertension is common, irregular and decreased pulse and hypothermia. We will consult a nutritionist. Our goal for weight gain is a half to two pounds a week, and that would be if they are underweight. Like we said, our bulimics may not be underweight. We'll ask them to journal their food intake and their exercise activity, actually. Um, it is a visual representation of their progress. We will educate on the consequences of their poor eating and excessive exercise and, and how the adequate nutrition can remedy the things that they're experiencing. Um, group therapy is great in these situations. We do encourage emotional support, um, and we treat the underlying cause, which is usually depression. New disorders. Can you see the gray skies hanging over this one? So this is depression and bipolar. One to three percent of school agers will have it, and eight percent of adolescents. The girls are twice as likely as boys to have it. If it is prolonged, it's called dysthymic disorder. Um, bipolar refers to the alternating manic and depressive episodes. During manic episodes, the mood is significantly elevated, and the child has excess energy. Uh, so sometimes it's hard to detect, uh, but it is definitely uh, occurring in these age groups. Depression may cause a significant alteration in school performance and social relationships. they just rather sit in their room alone. Depression has a high association with anxiety. They occur together a lot of times, and they um, may lead to substance abuse. Divorce and other serious family issues may contribute to the development of depression. ACE is a term that you'll see used. It's adverse childhood events. And a lot of research has recently been focusing on this. Um, it's a relatively new term, but it has been identified with a lot of negative impacts, mostly self-harm and then drug, alcohol, and risk-taking behavior. The self-harm we're talking about is cutting, burning, or hitting themselves. And here's our statistics on suicide, y'all. This is really awful. 17.2% seriously considered it. Not just, you know, had a passing fleeting thought, but they seriously considered it. We're talking about all teenagers, not just people with mental health disorders. 17.2% seriously considered it. 13.6% had a plan, and 7.4% had attempted. Y'all, this is awful. That's according to the CDC. And this is all teens, not just teens with, you know, whatever disorder. Name your pick, name your poison there. It is all teens. So 7.4% had a, attempted suicide. That is uh, unbelievable. Um, social media has made this worse. But believe it or not, with COVID, <laughs> you would think it was worse. 
But with COVID, it's actually better. And as much as those kids act like they hate your ever-loving guts sometimes, you are their support system, and you are there, and you're spending more time with them during this COVID. And as much as they might act as though they reject that, that is where they know that they are loved, where they know that they're accepted, where they know that they can be who they are. And so um, suicide has actually decreased with COVID. I thought that was interesting. So uh, more on mood disorders, and we're going to try to pick up the pace. Um, I cut you off some slack on the other lecture, so maybe we'll have to use it here, but I will try to pick up the pace a little bit. Um, the mood disorders are multifactorial. They may be uh, due to neuroendocrine changes, and they're talking about serotonin here. Um, maybe a genetic transmission, the adverse childhood events, abuse, uh, parental early onset mood disorders may be an indication that the child is suffering from that, parental substance abuse or um, criminality, and a lack of family cohesiveness and increased discord. Family management is through psychotherapy and pharmacologic interventions with antidepressants, and this is going to be SSRI. Now, the downside of this um, SSRI is that they do have sexual side effects, and this is right during those adolescent years when they are figuring out their sexuality and establishing pair-bond relationships. And so um, if they are needed, they need to be used, but they should only be used for a certain period of time. Um, untreated depression in children are at higher risk of developing comorbid disorders, disorders such as anxiety and substance abuse, eating disorder, self-harm, or disruptive behavior, and they sometimes do also have ADHD that occurs concomitant with it. On our history, we're going to ask about changes in behavior or peer relationships, school performance, your extracurricular activities, sleep disturbances, changes in eating patterns, or increase in accidents, or risk-taking behavior. Um, we will ask about stressors such as parents, school, um, dating, or abuse that might have occurred. Um, on bipolar, we will, um, they'll have rapid pressured speech. They will have increased energy, decreased sleep, very flamboyant behavior, or irritability. And if they have money, y'all, they will spend every last dime. So our last thoughts on mood disorders, children do regress. Uh, they might be really weepy and withdrawn, have some apathy where they just couldn't care less. Um, they may have self-inflicted injuries. Teach mood disorders are biological conditions. They are not personality flaws. Our parents need to understand that as well. Support the family process. Establish a trusting relationship. Screen all healthy preteens and teens for any kind of mental health disorder. Screen and refer um, early for best results. Prepare um, when these kids are about to face some kind of grief causing event like the death of grandma or something. You have to prepare ahead of time knowing that they're fixing to go through it. So anxiety disorders, um, most, this is the most common um, diagnosis of psychiatric condition among children and adolescents. So they have a lot of anxieties. Often occurs with other mental health disorders, especially depression. 
So like I said, they're best friends. They go hand in hand, anxiety and depression. All children experience a degree of fear, worry, and shyness. Infants fear loud noises and strangers. Toddlers are afraid of the dark and separation. School-agers fear imaginary creatures and body mutilation. School-agers worry, I might have said school-agers, I meant preschoolers fear the imaginary creature and body mutilation. It's school-agers that worry about injury and natural events. And adolescents are anxious about school and social uh, performance. These are normal fears that produce a certain level of anxiety that's tolerated by most children. Um, we have to distinguish when it's normal levels and when it's too high, um, because when it is too high, it will result in unwanted behaviors at every age. So anxiety does come in different forms. One is actually named generalized anxiety disorder. And that is characterized by unrealistic concerns over past behavior, future events, or personal competence. Social phobia is the fear of speaking or eating in front of others, using a public restroom, or speaking to authorities. Selective mutism is the persistent failure to speak. Separation anxiety is common in children, and it may need to remain, that child may need to remain close to the parents. Um, to help deal with their fears and um, help them get beyond that. OCD is that obsessive compulsive disorder and they have repetitive behaviors like cleaning, washing, or checking a particular thing like a lock on a door or the iron is unplugged, something like that. They'll have one particular thing and they do that to reduce anxiety. And then I think y'all are all familiar with PTSD and that's post-traumatic stress disorder. It occurs after a traumatic event where the child relives the experience anytime something triggers. Um, on the pathology, it occurs as a result of a disruption in the modulation within the CNS, which we talked about serotonin, and an overreaction of the noradrenergic system, which causes a dysregulation in physiologic arousal and results in an emotional experience. Genetics may play a role Family and environment definitely play a role. Um, abnormal thoughts or behavior um, may have been learned through observation or conditioning. You know, so they live in a household where no one knows how to deal with their anger or their frustration, and um, therefore they don't learn it, and they follow the path of those that they're around. Children don't know the terminology to put their feelings into words, so they won't come in and complain of anxiety. Um, they a lot of times will have uh, a racing heart or something else is our main complaint. So we'll evaluate somatic complaints. They oftentimes try to avoid um, being in situations that make them stressful by complaining of headaches or stomach aches. The health history, um, do they have parents who are dysfunctional? Um, have they been through a particularly stressful event? Do they have unstable parental attachment? They may describe the heart racing and young children are overactive or act out. Older children may complain of being nervous, angry, fearful, um, have some tension or disruptive behaviors. MASC is a tool. It uses a scale of 1 to 10. Ask the child what their level is and ask the parent what they think the child's level is. And then we'll ask the parent, what does your child worry about? We'll look for telltale signs of anxiety like nail biting, picking, cutting, 
are pill rolling. And that's where they sit there and they just can't, cannot keep from rubbing their fingers together. Y'all will learn more about that. It's like anxiety, um, a few last thoughts. So we do need to screen. We need to identify, refer, teach, and support, prescribe medicines when necessary, create ownership of their feelings, require follow-up, um, that having to come back in and answer to what have they done to manage their anxiety certainly helps as a tool. Psychotherapy is great, and family therapy may be needed as well. Oh, abuse and violence. We're going to have to talk about it just for a minute. Um, this contributes significantly to mental health disorders in children. So here's the different types. Child maltreatment, that includes physical abuse, sex abuse, emotional abuse, and neglect. Physical is the intentional infliction of pain on a child. Sexual involves um, uh, an adult finding gratification from any sexual act from a child. Emotional is verbal and not just directed at that child, but one parent to another, uh, a parent to a sibling or siblings, anything that is a form of verbal abuse, abuse that negatively impacts that child's psyche. Neglect is a failure to provide a child with appropriate food, clothing, or shelter, um, or schooling, and yes, medical treatment. So uh, medical um, neglect is very common. So the statistics, it's difficult to determine. The perpetrator usually forces the victim into silence. Um, children do not want to admit that their parent or family member has hurt them. And plus they know if they tell on that parent that the parent may be lost to them by you know, jail or being removed from the household. Here's some the statistics that they do provide. In 2015, 4 million referrals to CPS involving 7.2 million children um, and they believe that this is grossly underreported. Um, it is all SES, but it is more prevalent in the poor, I think probably because stress levels are high. Um, the largest percentage of children affected is less than three years old. The perpetrator is typically the parent or a relative or a family member that's position of you know babysitting or caregiving. On abuse, uh, abuse leads to anxiety and depression disorders, suicidal ideation, alcohol and drug abuse. Um, maltreatment results in significant physical injury, poor physical health, impaired brain development. Uh, being the victim of any abuse places the child at risk for developmental delays and behavior problems. We have to intervene. That child needs to see that rescuers exist and that they are worth being rescued and that life can be normal. We are mandatory reporters. You have to ask, are the injuries consistent with the story that they are telling you? Is the parent doing all the talking while the child sits over there and looks Okay, so we do need to ask a few more things. Are you afraid of, this is a questionnaire that can be used for the patient or the parent. Are you afraid of anyone at home? Who could you tell if someone hurt you? Has anyone hurt you? Are you afraid of anyone at home? Do you ever feel like you may hit or hurt your child when you're frustrated? So abuse and violence. The risk factors are poverty, prematurity, cerebral palsy, chronic illness, and intellectual disability. Abuser risk factors, um, they have a history of being abused themselves, 
an alcohol or substance abuse disorder or extreme stress. We have to determine if the child has a history of self-harm, running away, suicide attempts, or risk-taking behaviors. Any kind of inappropriate